It's good to see God's people this morning, and uh, I love God's people. I love the church. One of the things we are working on doing is making our experience as disciples more robust, and we're encouraging people um, to step beyond just Sunday morning worship, but ways of getting connected and, and classes. You know, I reported this earlier this year. We have every room in the building that's being used on Sunday morning for a class. There's con- groups during the week, and we have more people that want to teach more classes who are excited about that. And we want people to get plugged into those classes as well. It's how we grow as Christians. Um, and we have accountability, and we have people that will walk alongside us and be there for us as we're building those Christian relationships. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about what God is doing. Um, so God has given me a message, and the timing of this is interesting. So we're going to be dealing with the last portion of Luke chapter 17 today, and I have all this written down. I try to have my sermon done by Thursday, so I don't have to think about it over the weekend, but it's kind of this thing that's been, been marinating, and I have things written down, and God is giving me more and more and more, and uh, sometimes it's like that. Um, so God brought something to mind this week. It's a book I read years ago. I read it in 2006. I usually mark my books when I read them, and it allows me to think about how God was working in my life at the time. But I have this little book, uh, A Man Without Equal. It's pretty simple. I would recommend reading it. It explains salvation, defending the faith, the resurrection, that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's written by Dr. Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade. He ran that for many years. He passed away in 2003. I think I came across the book around um, 2004 or 5, maybe at a yard sale or something. I'm not sure how I got it or somebody gave it to me out of the library. And I read it in 2006, and I remember a specific story in the book, and God brought it to my mind this week. And it's a story of Dr. Bill Bright, who graduated from University of California, was speaking there, defending the faith, encouraging people to come to Christ at the college, young people. And after he was done, there was a young man that came up to him complaining, how dare you try to convince people to believe the way you believe? And Dr. Bill Bright, on the inside, he laughs, as we all do when people say what they say, because the young man held a group on the campus as well, trying to convince people to believe his way. And he said, why don't you just come back to my home? We'll have a conversation. So he comes back to his home, they're talking, and they would have young people in their home all the time. And the young man was, you know, very argumentative at first, and then Bill was just very patient with him and peaceable. And he says, I want to share something with you from the Bible. And the guy was like, I've read the Bible from cover to cover. There's, it's full of contradictions. And when people say that, typically that what they mean is, I have not read the Bible, and I don't even know what I'm talking about. But they, Because <laughs> uh, you ask what contradictions, and they're like, oh, you know. So, um, But he ends up Bill Bright begins to run through salvation and and some of the scripture about Jesus being God. And the young man said, let me read that. And he'd grab the Bible and read through it a few times. And he'd hand it back to Dr. Bright and he'd read another section. And he'd take it and read it again. And what we begin to see happening is that young man, it wasn't more light that he needed per se. He just needed more sight. Excuse me, I have that. Yeah, I have that right. Okay, (laughs) sometimes I get that backwards. There's enough light. We just need spiritual sight. And the young man's soul was awakened. And as he was preparing to leave, Dr. Bright said, if you would just uh, sign this book. We have guests in all the time. We'd love for them to sign the book. And you can write a comment if you want to. And Dr. Bright read it later of what he said. And the young man said this, the night of decision. That he was confronted with the gospel. He was confronted with the nature of who God is, the reality of salvation, and had to make a decision. 
And with that being said, I want to talk to you about making the decision. On any given Sunday, I can come in here and there's somebody that maybe is a skeptic, or there's a friend that's been invited, maybe somebody that's been hurt in their past, maybe someone is stepping forward in their faith, maybe they're a new believer trying to grow, maybe you've been in the faith for years, maybe there's somebody that needs to be revitalized and encouraged again. There's people at different places in their walk. But we eventually have to make a decision. We cannot continue to go in life kind of in limbo, in between. Because what God gives us is a decision. It's my kingdom or the kingdom of the world. And I have a quote here I want to share with you. It's uh, William Law. I think he was living in the 1600s. And to be ordained at that time, you had to swear allegiance to the king. And he said, I'm not doing that. And so they would not ordain him. He continues to do ministry. And he just realizes, I cannot swear allegiance to a king of this world. And he says this, If you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will in the end make no difference what you have chosen instead. Meaning that we must make that decision. We must make that choice. I want to follow Christ and be a part of His kingdom. Now, church, we are disciples of the King and His kingdom, that King being Jesus Christ, and we are both servants of the King, and we are also sons of the Father. We see these things happening at the same time. We are serving God, but we are also in relationship with Him. So we have both those things. But our primary goal is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And I want you to know that the church is not the kingdom. The church is one part of God's kingdom. This plan that is happening. There's various things that are happening, and we are to help speak to the truth of Christ being the King, and we want to help bring people into His kingdom. Now today we are dealing with some very weighty spiritual truths concerning this, the kingdom of God. And I want you to know that during the time of Christ, He would speak, the kingdom was important to the Jews. They had been under occupation, they were under Babylon, they were under Persia, they were under Rome, they only had about 150 years where it was, it was their deal, they were free. They wanted God to take the kingdom, but they wanted it to be physical. But there was a lot of conversation about the kingdom. Jesus would talk about who gets to enter into the kingdom of God. Who cannot enter into the kingdom of God? And when you get into this, they're wondering, when is this kingdom coming? And Jesus is going to deal with that. But before we get into that, I, I want to remind you of a few things that Jesus said and also the Apostle Paul. Jesus says this in John chapter 3 and verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I spent a whole sermon talking about that, that you must be born again to even see the kingdom of God because it is a spiritual matter. The Apostle Paul says this, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We need the Spirit of God in our lives to teach us these things. Jesus again, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Now that is perplexing. That at any given moment when we come in here and hear the message of Christ, that the enemy can snatch out these truths. Luke chapter 8 deals with that, the sower and the seeds. That the seed falls down on this, the heart and Satan comes and snatches it away. 
And I often wonder what really causes that if we're in here and we're hearing the words. Is it because something distracts us in the world? Because obviously Satan and his kingdom has better attendance in church than Christians today. I mean, it's emptying out because he's deceiving. He's snatching, he's snatching the word out of our hearts. Is it when we go out into the world and something distracts us from the kingdom? But what we see here is that the enemy can snatch it away. So my prayer today is that we have spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, that we are born again. That we are born from above. Born into the kingdom of God to understand these kingdom principles. And that you may have the life of Jesus that we need, that the world needs. So here it is. With that being said, let's get into the Holy Scriptures. We are in Luke chapter 17, the last few, the passage here of 20 through 37. This is probably the longest passage of Scripture I've had in a sermon in a while, but I don't know that we can really break it apart. So it's all here for us together today. And being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that, you can, uh, that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, it is here or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you now. Meaning that Jesus is there. The kingdom is already coming. It's not as people say, there's a little thing over here or there. Then he turns to the disciples. We see two groups, Pharisees and disciples. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see... Um, the, one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. What is Jesus saying here? He first came as the suffering servant. The Jews wanted this conquering king to come, and Jesus came as the suffering servant. There is a time where people want this gentle suffering servant, the Lamb, but He is coming again as a roaring lion. He will be coming to judge the world, but we want the suffering kind little Lamb now. And actually, the book of Revelation talks about the wrath of the Lamb. And that's what they're speaking to here. And, that, and they will say, look here and look there, but do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, the, so will be the Son of Man in His day. What does this mean? It's not little secret pockets. When this thing happens, it is open, it is public. It's as lightning striking and lights up the entire sky. But first, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Meaning that Christ would go to the cross. There's things that have to happen first before the judgment. And then He speaks to the judgment. What is it going to be like? Jesus, or just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them, all emphasized twice. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed, meaning the judgment. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take that away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. The point is, is that you don't have time to go back and get your stuff because the judgment has come. And here's something we're going to focus in on today. Remember Lot's wife. Now raise your hand if you've grown up in church and you've heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Now for us to remember, we're going to talk about what we have to remember because if you've not been taught it, we have to explain it. 
So whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bedroom. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, one will be left. In some manuscripts it talks about two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. There are many who have thought this speaks to the rapture. We think this speaks to actual judgment. That God's judgment has come and some are taken and the ones who are left go into the great tribulation. And then here we have it, verse 37. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And some who believe that this is the time of the Armageddon here. But we are going to focus in on judgment today in this portion where Jesus says, the judgment will happen, the coming of the Lord, the days of Christ, will be as Noah and Lot. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your love, and your mercy. And Lord, at times we struggle with your severity, but I pray that we embrace who you are as God. And we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. It is by your grace we are saved through faith. But Lord, let us be a people who are serious-minded, that we are spiritually minded and understanding that we don't get to just do life the way we want it, that we are to be a part of your kingdom and telling others to be prepared. All of this is for us to be ready We can't get prepared once it has happened. And I pray that this stirs our hearts and our minds today to move with action, to advance the kingdom, to connect with family and friends, to share the good news, to bring them to be discipled in the body of Christ, that we can experience your goodness and your grace, that we may be saved from the coming judgment. We love you today. Bless your words as they go forward in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot going on here. Judgment, hard stuff. And this is obviously a section of, on the end times, and more specifically the coming of the judgment with Christ. But we also see examples of Noah's days and Lot. So we're dealing with the past, we're dealing with present, we're dealing with future and prophecy. And church, we are already, I would say, this is what I believe, we are in the last days. So at the time of Christ, Christ is cut off, He dies at the cross, He rose again, He has ascended, he, the Holy Spirit has come, the church is established, we are in the age of grace, we are in the age of the church, but this is the latter times, this is the last days. But what we can see is things intensifying in the world that Jesus spoke to. There's things that have to happen in the world as we proceed. But either way, we are to be prepared as God's people and talk about the goodness of Jesus, that He wants to save people. Our culture needs Jesus. They've been taught every lie. They've been skeptic this and that. Science has proven. You know, I've been teaching a class on uh, Sundays to college students, and I'm trying to teach them, one, is to doubt your doubts. Satan is really good about planting seeds of doubt, and we assume that is truth. So why not doubt the doubts and trust the truth of God? But people will say, well, science has proven that evolution is true and that God is not true. How hard is it to ask them back, how has science proven this? And a lot of them will go, uh, 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 scientist. Which scientist? Um, um, well, this guy I read about. Well, I want to know who said it. Let's have a conversation, because I know scientists who have said there is a God... 
and that we believe in creation, that we believe in the truth of God's Word, and it is trustworthy. But here I want to talk to you about two things today, the heart issues, and there's going to be some heart issues that we have to deal with today. So first, the heart issues, and Jesus is always speaking to the heart of the matter. In verse 21, Jesus says this, For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, Jesus is always, always, always dealing with our heart in any scenario. Like the young man that comes to Jesus and says, well, how, what can I do to enter the kingdom of God? Well, have you kept the law? Yeah, I kept them all since my youth. You've kept these commands. Okay, then I'm going to give you a new command since I am good and I am God. Go and sell all your stuff. He walks away. Um, because Jesus is dealing with the heart of the matter. Of course, it's easy I mean, you don't have to murder people. I can say, I've, I've kept the law since my youth, not murdered anybody, not been doing these things, right? But Jesus commands us to do new things, that we are to be obedient to him. He deals with the heart issues. Now, I've heard people use this text to say that Jesus was saying he wants to set up his kingdom in their hearts. But here, he's not referring to the heart here. He says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. There's a specific Greek word that Jesus uses. It's entos, which means among you. The kingdom, he's saying to the Pharisees, I am here. I am in the midst of you. He could have used the Greek word cardia because he does. He talks about the heart. And when he's dealing with the heart issues, he speaks the, word, the Greek word cardia. So there's those who merely want to say that Jesus is setting up his kingdom in our hearts. He's not really ushering in a physical kingdom. The problem is with that is that Jesus is not setting up his kingdom in the wicked hearts of the Pharisees. He's speaking to the Pharisees. The kingdom is in the midst of you. He's not saying it is in your hearts. Now, Christ has come to set up his kingdom in the hearts of believers. But Jesus is dealing with various serious subjects here. They want this kingdom to be set up the way they wanted it. They were trying to move in with Jesus because he had a backing and they wanted him to take over. They wanted to take back Rome. It's what they wanted to take back Jerusalem and the, the, their earthly kingdom that they wanted to set up. And that's what Jesus has not come to do. And the heart of the issue here is that Jesus always is concerned with how we are going to respond. Any issue, if Jesus was to approach you today and you would ask him a question, he's not always going to answer the question you asked. He's dealing with the person behind the question and the heart issues. Like I have people say, why would God, if he's so good, allow this thing to happen? What is holding them up from following Jesus? What are these issues? And Jesus is dealing with our response about his coming kingdom. There are things we need to know about Christian, uh, Christianity as Christians to prepare uh, our hearts for what is to come. And again, these are spiritual matters. Why does our world not want to hear this message? Because it is spiritually discerned. They don't want to be held accountable for their actions. And judgment is coming. And it is a real thing. And that churches don't want to talk about it. I heard a wonderful message recently by uh, Craig Groeschel. Raise your hand if you know who he is. Some people say he's a prosperity guy. And I was like, he's been preaching on hell and judgment lately. I mean, it has been awesome. And he says, you have to believe these things as Christians. Now, when we believe our hearts are made new by God, he comes to dwell in our hearts. He dwells in our lives. We are born again. We're born into his kingdom. We are to be kingdom minded. We are children of God. We are children of his kingdom. But there's this ongoing war of the kingdom of the world and God's kingdom. 
It's going to continually happen until you place and get serious about your faith and make that decision, that decision, that choice, no matter what, I want to be a part of God's kingdom. And there was a point in Johnny Cash's life where he realizes that. Raise your hand if you know who Johnny Cash is. A conundrum. Grew up believing in the Lord. He kind of wanted to do some spiritual songs. You know, he gets famous. And he's faltering along the way and learning the grace of God and really becomes, I mean, he's done things about Jesus and, and the gospel. There's things that you can still see and read about today. He says this, I have tried drugs and little of everything. And there's nothing in this world more soul satisfying than having the kingdom of God building inside you and growing. Isn't that awesome? When you recognize I've been delivered from sin in my life before Christ and He's building His life and His kingdom in me and I'm a part of His kingdom. And church, those are the heart issues for us today. That our heart is to be transformed. That we're to believe in Christ and be a part of His kingdom. And there's some heavy issues we have to deal with. Verses 26 through 27. Here, Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. I want you to know the older I get, the longer I follow Christ and the more I study the Word, the more I am. I see how wonderful the words of God are and how good they are. And how they help us. And how they speak to things that the world won't even speak to. I can read the Scripture and God has convicted me of something in my life and speaking clearly to sin and I can call on Him and know that He is restoring me. They are profound and wonderful, His words. But I want you to see something else here that a lot of people, I think, have skipped over and I believe how God has uh, allowed His Word to come to be, that it is God breathed by the Holy Spirit who used holy men to write these things down for a reason. And Jesus speaks in such a way, and this is the time where we need to hear this. First, I want you to hear, Jesus does not change the historical account of Noah. Why change it? Why alter? And that's not really what God did. He never says that. Jesus never says, this is just a story that's been passed down to scare you. He does not say that. He had every opportunity at any given moment in dealing with hard issues that he could have changed the Scripture. He always affirms the truth of God's Word. He quotes Deuteronomy. He quotes the Scripture. He speaks of Moses and the prophets that we are to believe them. He speaks of Jonah as a real person. He is speaking of Noah. That this is true history and a reality that happened. No need to change it. I'm going to reference it because it's important for us to understand. The second thing is Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament. Jesus is not some new God that has come into the world. We're celebrating His incarnation. It's not like He didn't exist before. And all of a sudden He existed. Perfect music for this. Jesus is God. He has always existed. Now Jesus... It's the same as the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the same as Jesus. And here's the thing. He has existed in eternity past. Now, I think it's James 8.58 where Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's radical because Jesus' incarnation has not happened yet. But before Abraham even lived, I am and existed. And it says they took up stones. They wanted to kill him because he's making himself equal with God. Because Jesus is God. Jesus was there. He was very much part of the Trinity. It's not like all of a sudden the Trinity formed. God the Father, God the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity has always existed, the triune Godhead. In fact, they decided this. The triune Godhead, God, is the one who decided to flood the earth. And they made a way that Noah had found grace in God's eyes. There was mercy there. And Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And people rejected the goodness that they could have turned from their sin all this time. But God did this thing. And you could actually, if you would, if you want to make this reference, write it down. Jude, Jude 1, 5-7 through 7, explains who Jesus is in the Old Testament. Now, why is our loving Lord, what is He really saying here about the second coming? Well, it's going to be just as the days of Noah. Well, what were the days of Noah like? Well, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were doing life as usual. What are we doing today? We're eating, we're eating Thanksgiving meal this weekend, we're drinking, we're marrying, we're doing life as normal, and then the day is going to come because you don't expect it, because we do not know the day. People were doing life as normal until Noah went into the ark and then the judgment came and it says destroyed all the people. Jesus didn't say, actually, he didn't do that. We just say that there to scare you. He just doesn't do that. And this is a reference to the coming judgment. Only those in the ark salvation, which is Christ, will be delivered from the coming judgment. The whole point here is we have to be prepared. You can't run back into the house and get your stuff. You can't prepare once Christ is coming in the clouds and all His glory and judgment is here. Say, oh, by the way, I believe now. The judgment has come. We can't run into the ark after the door is closed and the water starts coming. You have to be prepared. That is the whole point. There's no point in calling on Christ to save you when you see Him coming in all His glory. Now, Jesus also references the time of Lot. And this is important for us. Verses 28 through 30, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on that day, on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, one is going into Christ, one is being pulled out of the world, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Again, people are doing life like normal. And by normal, I mean with no concern of God and the coming judgment. They were living the way they wanted to do life. They weren't thinking that this God would come and hold us accountable for our actions. And that is the whole point that we teach this. Is that there is a way to be saved and be put in this relationship with God to be saved from the coming judgment. None in Sodom and Gomorrah were panicking, which is interesting to think about. None were selling their property to get out of town. And they should have been, been leaving when they saw Lot getting out of there, but none of them did. In fact, his, brother, his son-in-laws mocked him. Only he and his daughters and his wife began to leave. And on that day when Lot went out, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. all. There's good theologians that think this is speaking to the rapture. And the reason I say that is because he is taken. The angels actually have to drag Lot out. He is taken. The New Testament says he is righteous Lot. And sometimes I wonder how, how God looks at things is perplexing, isn't it? But his life was vexed living in the world. And here it is. He is taken out. Then the judgment comes. That the church will be taken out first, then the judgment. And here's the main issue that I want you to see here. Is that it refers to Lot's wife. And it's just a, a few words here. Verse 32, three words. Remember Lot's wife. 
Now, I asked today to think about how many people really know who Lot's wife is and know the story, but you cannot remember Lot's wife unless you know the story. And here it is. Abraham is called by God. He's given him a promised land that he's not seen to go to. He's going to give him a promised seed. He's going to give him a promised blessing. All these things, and he would be a blessing to the entire world. Abraham says, yes, by faith and follows God. His family comes with him. His nephew Lot comes as well. And so these, these, this huge group of these shepherds, if you will, they bring their flocks with them and they go into the promised land. The flocks are growing and then the workers of the flock start arguing and bickering and Abraham has to deal with this situation. He wants there to be peace in the family. It goes a lot. Let's not have this argument. Wherever you choose a land, you can take it that way with your people and your flock and I will go the opposite direction. Lot chooses a land and it says it looked as if it was the Garden of Eden. That's why we say a lot of times, just because the grass is greener doesn't mean it is. And it says in the scriptures, he cast his tents toward Sodom and Gomorrah. And you don't hear about it for a while. And then now, in Genesis chapter 19, we see that these three angels, these messengers come and Abraham brings them into his home. And there's one there, there's three. One in the middle and two on the sides there. Those two leave. But the one in the middle has something to tell Abraham. The wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah has come up to God. And God, it's time that he has to deal with it. And he starts pleading for Lot because Lot has made his way into Sodom and Gomorrah and is living there. The two angels go down there to rescue while Abraham, well actually to destroy the place, but to end up rescuing Lot. And Abraham is pleading and interceding. If you could just find 50 people, don't destroy. If you just find 25, he gets them down to just 10. They could not find 10 righteous people. And God delivers Lot, and on their way out, Lot's wife looks back. Jesus says here, remember Lot's wife. And it's perplexing. You know, it's like she didn't take what was about to happen serious. That judgment is coming down on this city. And what we see is that she was more in love with the world than her rescuer. She was more in love with back there where everything was, that she had had these relationships, she had had these people, she had become like the world. And that is a problem for us today as we see this. She is an example of those who have superficially or have superficial relationships with the body of Christ. There are those today who think they've been saved because they are nice people. It never says she participated in the sin per se, but she did life with the people. Well, maybe it's because they have a church membership today. I've had people share with me, well, I am a member of this church. And I said, what's the name of the church? Well, uh, well, I don't, what does that even mean that you have a membership? Does that even mean that you're saved? I've had people say, well, my daddy was a pastor. Well, your dad might be a pastor and be saved. It does not mean that you're saved. Well, my great grandma was a charter member of the church, but we're asking, what about your heart? Do you believe? Because grandma can't get you into heaven. Your spouse cannot get you into heaven. If anything, this shows us that just because you're married does not mean you're getting into heaven. Here it is. She thinks she's safe because she's married to Lot. People think because they have a family member that's saved that they get to get in. In church, it is by grace through faith that we are saved. We must believe in this God. The God that delivers and the God that will destroy sin and evil in the world. The problem is that Lot's wife did not believe that God would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. 
She had a misunderstanding of God's character. And this is the thing. She was affirming of the world system. That is something that's creeping into the church today, that we are to affirm ungodly behavior. And this is exactly what Lot's wife is doing. Now here's the deal. You're either affirming the world system or you are being delivered and you're believing and affirming God's plan of salvation. You're either affirming sin or you are affirming God's plan of salvation. And here it is. She looks back. And Jesus said this. This is what's phenomenal. He says this in Luke. We've gone over this. Luke chapter 9, verse 62. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We are dealing with the kingdom of God. How do I get in? Who can't come? Who is fit for the kingdom? If you're following Christ and you keep looking back to the way your life used to be, here's people today. Well, I got married at a young age and I didn't get to live out my childhood. You know what they mean? I didn't get a chance to live in sin. You should be thankful you didn't go clubbing and hooking up and spreading STDs. That is a good thing. What did you really miss out on? Well, I didn't get to party with my friends. Have you looked at your friends today? They're like, hey, you know, you're like, what in the world's going on with that person? I have people, I've told you this, my, that are my age that look like they're in their late 50s because of drugs and alcohol and sin. I didn't miss out. I got enough of it. I'm not looking back. I'm putting my hands to the work of Christ. I want to follow Him. I want to be a, a part of God's kingdom. And here's the deal. Our modern society and culture of Christianity is more like Lot's wife today. And they want to change who God is and they want to lessen the reality of sin. People, you can try to change the Scriptures. You can try to change history. You can try to even change the character of God and, or who God is. And there are many today trying to change the nature and character of God. Here is what it, God is too good. He would never do that. But they don't have an understanding of His goodness and how bad sin is. But here's the thing. God has done it before. God destroyed the world and delivered one man and his family and started over again. God did destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He did do it. It is hard for us to understand that because we have made sin better than it really is and we've lowered the standard of who God is. God is righteous. He is holy. He loves you. He wants to save you. But He has to deal with sin. One sin is an eternal offense against the holy God. But He has made a way for us to make those things right. And here it is. People keep looking back to the world. And it's really a heart issue. Again, Jesus is dealing with the heart. Why did Lot's wife look back? Because her heart was wrapped up in the world. James deals with this. I don't know when Jarvis's class will get to it. But a friend of the world is enmity with God. If we are friends and, and, and dealing with that, it is, in, it is at war with God to be living out this friendship. And I don't mean we cannot be friendly to the world. We're to meet people and build those relationships. But we are not to be in love with the world. One of the greatest delusions of this world is that they think they can make themselves good enough to enter into heaven. And they think they're good enough to be saved. On the other hand, they say, I'm just human when it comes to, to sin and, and wickedness and worldliness. I'm good enough on one end, but when I make a mistake, I'm just human. Is that not the excuse we hear? Ah, well, I'm just human like all the rest of us. And it doesn't mean that we're all doing the same things. I think instead of saying I am, we should, instead of saying I am human as an excuse to live in sin in the flesh, we should say I'm a Christian so I can live in the spirit. I'm a Christian. I have boundaries. 
There's things I'm not going to do. There's things I'm not going to say. There's things I'm not going to participate in. I love people in those scenarios, but I want to rescue them out. And so the point is here today, let's live for Christ and be prepared because there is a judgment. And to rescue more people. It should encourage us and motivate us that I want to tell people about Jesus. That is who we are. We are a kingdom people. We are to advance His kingdom by telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. Back to the heart. Discipleship is an inescapable war between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. Every time God is calling us, this, is, this battle has happened, but you have to choose the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the world will be will fall under God's judgment. So we have to decide now instead of looking back to the world. And as we close, I just want to share this with you. We've celebrated Thanksgiving and over the years, I mean, we dressed up as pilgrims and Indians in school. We've heard the proclamations. We've heard about those things at the first Thanksgiving. We've heard about George Washington talking about the Thanksgiving Day. We've heard about the declaration given by President Lincoln. But before that, there's a history of the pilgrims that a lot of people don't talk about. So we loosely say, well, they just wanted to escape persecution, so they came here. A lot of people don't know is that the pilgrims had already escaped persecution in England, and they had sailed to Holland, and they were living there in a very tolerant, religious tolerant area. And they'd lived there almost 12 years. They had it pretty good. Why leave? Now, there's three things, and two of which a lot of people will talk about is one is that there was an economical issue. They wanted more freedom to make more money. Another issue is that they heard a peace treaty was coming to an end and that there would probably be war and they didn't want to see their kids wrapped up in the war. But the third issue was put down by William Bradford and I want to share that with you today because it's important. It's not just, well, the pilgrims were escaping religious persecution. That's not entirely so. William Bradford says this concerning Holland. Many of their children were succumbing to Leiden's, Leiden Holland, manifold temptations and were being drawn away by evil examples into extravagant and dangerous courses. Why did they leave? They wanted to escape seduction. They watched as their kids were being pulled away. And that is the core of what we're dealing with. That Lot's wife was seduced by Sodom and Gomorrah. The Scripture tells us that it vexed Lot's soul as he saw the wickedness. And here it is today. There is no escaping the seductions of the world. We are going to be tempted. It is here. So how do we deal with it? We have to decide and choose today. I want the kingdom of God. I want His deliverance and His salvation. Amen, church? Let me close with you in prayer. Father, I pray that Your Spirit has speaking, spoken clearly to us today and is speaking clearly to us. And I pray that You have given us eyes to see this reality and ears to hear heavenly truth and that we understand Your character better. That You are this good, good Father to Your children. But there are those who will be judged who do not choose. That we are not to be wrapped up in the things of the world and sin and wickedness. That You have to deal with that even as a loving God. You have to deal with sin because you are just and you are righteous. And I pray that we choose you. That this is the hour of decision. That we say yes to your kingdom. And Lord, that we, we take it so serious that we are sharing the good news with others. That we are inviting people into our homes instead of us being invited into the world to teach them the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, that we can build up your kingdom, build up your church here. Lord, that we can rescue many for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And church, uh, maybe I'm going to pronounce a blessing upon you as you go. If you would just stand with me. A benediction, if you will. If you want to, you can put your hands out like this. It's the way we receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift His face to you and to give you peace. Go in grace and peace. You are dismissed. God bless you.